The scripture reading, uh, or for the, the, the text, uh, the sermon text, excuse me, this evening is Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. We looked at verse 1 last time as a general introduction, but now we begin to consider the contents of the book. Hear now the word of God. Now the the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priest Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering And cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest Aaron's son shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks of uh, uh, the sheep or of the goats as a burnt sacrifice. He shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar, but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the sides, uh, the side of the altar. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, sweet aroma to the Lord. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and we especially praise you for the book of Leviticus now, which we are hoping to uh, not just begin, but to dive into. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would unpack this this rich treasure to us through the preaching and by your own illuminating work uh, in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, having considered last time what was, uh, as I said our general introduction to the book of Leviticus uh, and considering its structure and the main themes and its place in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Now we begin to look at the contents uh, of the book, beginning with chapter one. You notice and anyone with any familiarity with the book knows that the book uh, begins in the first seven chapters with regulations concerning the sacrifices, a fitting emphasis, seeing that at the end of 
uh, Exodus, the tabernacle and the court were set up and the sacrifices might now commence without delay. Yes, but how should they be offered? You see, uh, the Lord is saying when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, the assumption is they're ready to do it. But now he begins to tell them how. He gives them the answer from the mercy seat. And chapter one concerns what we call burnt offerings, or I think it was burnt sacrifices in the text. And let me stop here and remind you that there were a variety of uh, kinds of offerings or sacrifices. Burnt offerings were only one class of them. And as we go through these chapters, we see the various classes. We will see in the next chapter there were meal offerings, or I think Voss calls them vegetable offerings. There were chapter 3, peace offerings, and then chapter 4, sin offerings. And then, uh, I'll confess a bit of ignorance, I'm not quite sure whether trespass offerings differ from sin offerings. That's chapter 5. I suppose we can wait until we get there. My initial answer is I don't think that they do. I think trespass offerings are part of that fourth category, the sin offerings. And so, uh, that being so, you have four different kinds, the burnt, the meal, the peace, and the sin offerings, and we are considering now the first kind, the burnt offering. The first question which we have is, what is the nature of the burnt offering in distinction from the other kinds? Well, if we just take our lead from the text, we see uh, quite clearly that it is an offering for sin and for atonement. Verse 4 makes this explicit. Uh, that the offering, the burnt offering, will be accepted, the Lord says, on his behalf, that is, on behalf of the offerer, to make atonement for him. That is, to make atonement for his sin. Now, generally speaking, I think we can agree that all of the sacrifices offered on the altar had this in common. They shared this feature in common. But unlike the sin offering, the burnt offering has a more generic Character. It is offered for sin in general, not sin in particular. But another quality of the burnt offering uh, can be seen from the passages we read in Exodus chapter 29, where we see specifically with reference to the priesthood and the burnt offerings that were offered on their behalf, that the burnt offering was part of what consecrated the priests for office. But again, we might notice that all of uh, the offerings and sacrifices share this in common as well. In fact, Gerhardus Voss uh, says, uh, if you can't tell, his couple pages on the sacrifices are very helpful. Uh, he says that, uh, that all of the sacrifices uh, were for expiation, that is the forgiveness of sins, and for consecration. And so we notice that quite clearly about uh, the burnt offering. Only if we were to try to be more specific, we would say that the burnt offerings were for sin in general. And then we would also notice with Voss that there is something in, uh, in particular about the burnt offering, which was connected with the idea of uh, consecration, especially. And so we must keep this in mind. Expiation and consecration. But having seen that, I would like to make several general observations from this passage before I notice uh, the specific regulations which are laid down. Uh, three. First, I would notice here, as we've noticed so many times already, especially in Exodus, but let me just begin my preaching and my exposition of the book of Leviticus by noticing 
the exactness and the precision of the commands which the Lord gives concerning the offerings. The, the, the man, the Lord assumes, is ready to give his offering, but not until the Lord has directed his steps. And so a desire to obey, we see, is not enough. We need directions to obey. God lays out here ordinances, we see, with a precision that we modern people find quite surprising. But there it is in the text. Let me state this as a matter of principle. Uh, Taking the whole Bible into consideration. Where the Lord gives freedom, there is freedom. And thank God, yes, there is greater freedom in the new covenant. But not as much freedom as we sometimes think. The really important point to see uh, from this text and from all of scripture is the other side of this. And that is where God requires exactness and precision in his laws and his ordinances. Our obedience must match his law and his command. In other words, as I was just saying a moment ago, a a generic desire to offer will not do. And then we just simply offer in any way we please. In fact, if you remember what we were considering in Malachi, that's actually what was happening at the end of Israel's life. They were making offerings, but they were woefully inadequate. That's what God is addressing here. Again, uh, speaking to people with a desire to obey, now he directs our path. God says, I want you to bring offerings just like this, in this specific way. And what we notice is uh, the same type of precision and the same type of instruction is found as well in the New Testament. It does not merely tell us, here is the parallel, uh, it does not tell us that we, mere, it does not merely tell us, I mean, that we as priests and ministers of a new covenant are to make offerings unto the Lord and then leave the matter to us to decide. I think that's how we sometimes think about it. We are priests and ministers of a new covenant. Peter tells us that. Paul tells us that we're to offer uh, spirit, spiritual sacrifices of praise through a sanctified life. Peter tells us that we are the ones ministering in the sanctuary of God. But again, it doesn't just leave us there and say, now you go about it in any way you like. But having established the fact that we are to bring spiritual sacrifices to the Lord as his priests. In both cases, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, the Lord through his apostles goes on to prescribe the types of offerings that he would have us to bring. And that prescription is found in the exhortations that follow in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. The kind of living which God regards as a spiritual sacrifice of praise. And so the principle might be stated thus in a practical matter, uh, or in a practical manner, I mean, that holiness is not generic but specific. Holiness is specific. That's what you see in Leviticus, but that's what you see throughout the Bible. That God has very specific expectations of holiness and holy living of his priests. So that we could say that the man who most closely adheres to the commands of God, especially with respect to worship, is the man who is most holy. Holiness is a quality that is seen only in relation to God's law. Jesus states it this way. He says, the one uh, who keeps even the least commands uh, of God, 
The smallest details is considered the greatest in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5. Now as a second principle I would notice, as this is a book of grace and of pure gospel grace, we, we, we begin to see that here in the second point in the various classes of men. If you look at how the chapter is divided, it could be divided something like this. Chapter 1 verses uh, 3 through 9, the rich. Uh, verses 10 through 13, the middle class and verses 14 through 17, the poor. And so in reality, in looking at the burnt offering, we need not go beyond verse 9 in our consideration of what was involved in the burnt offering. Everything that is prescribed is prescribed in those uh, nine verses, especially verses 3 through 9. But verses uh, 10 through 17 uh, really only distinguish the different types of men and thus the different types of offerings. Verses 1 through 9 deal with the rich who offered the best of their own herds. Verses uh, 10 through uh, 13, the middle class sheep or goats. And then verses 14 through 17, birds who were available to anyone. You didn't have to own one. You could just go to the field and get one. And so the only real distinction that's being made there is in what is being offered. The actual burnt offering itself. But as to the significance of the burnt offering, it was the same in every case. But in this, we notice another important principle or general observation about the gospel grace, which was available to men in the old covenant. And that is simply that all are able to come. That none under the old covenant were excluded from the covenant of grace based upon class or ability to offer. Here is, we find in the Old Covenant, Leviticus chapter 1, at the beginning of the book, the free offer of grace to all. To quote Bonar in his great commentary, he says, now he's speaking of the New Covenant, but he's he's matching it to what we find in Leviticus 1. He says, our high priest welcomes sinners under the wide name, him that cometh. The advancing footstep of the sinner to his altar, whether he be great or small, is a sweet sound in our Aaron's ear. And I would only add, on the other side of that, that it was no less true under the old covenant. It was not material possession or status that qualified one to come. It was only whether a man had a heart to come, whether he found it within him uh, to will to come. And he who did, whether rich or poor, God called upon him to come. And we notice to give the best that he had or he could find the best that he could afford. So Matthew Henry says, what was most acceptable at man's table must be brought to God's altar as a test. uh, I'm adding to Henry here, but as a test of man's sincerity, uh, sincerity. But then uh, as a third general observation, I would also notice Uh, From chapter one, but this applies to the whole of the book, and that is the relation between the priests and the people. Uh, And the the point I'm going to make here is probably not what you're thinking. When I'm speaking of the relation between the priests and the people, uh, what I would suggest is that the people played a greater part in the worship of the tabernacle than uh, perhaps we're prepared uh, to give them in our in our in our thoughts. The people had a part to play. The people participated in the sacrifice. In other words, they were not mere spectators. That is a fallacy in the New Covenant. 
That was also a fallacy in the old covenant to think of the priests as the ones who did everything and and the people merely as passive spectators. We notice, for instance, that they were the ones who brought the offerings, not the priests. It was the people. And it was the people, likewise, who laid their hand upon the offering and who killed the offer, uh, the offering. Now, the priests then took over and they uh, sprinkled the blood on the altar and they laid after cutting up the burnt offering, they laid it on the altar and they burnt it with fire. But really, if you think about it, they, it was about 50 50. The people did so much and the priests did so much. You notice uh, the interplay and the give and take. Now, this is a principle, I'm saying, that applies to the covenant of grace. We find it in the old covenant. We find it in the new covenant. Let me read something from our directory of public worship. It says, speaking of God and man, it begins with God. The triune God is not a passive spectator in public worship, but actively works in each element of the service of worship. And surely we can say that here. God was present in the offering. We'll see that. Neither, our our directory says, neither are the people of God to be passive spectators in public worship, but by faith are to participate actively in each element of the service of worship. Every part from uh, the greeting, the apostolic greeting, all the way to the benediction, you are exercising your faith. You're not a passive spectator. You're an active participant in worship. And so, well, the reason I quote that, uh, the directory of worship, aside from the fact that I I just love it so much, uh, is to show how this was true even under the old covenant with the priesthood when we would have thought perhaps maybe it wasn't true. Maybe when there was a priesthood, the people didn't have a part to play. Not so. Read Leviticus. The priests were acting, but so were the people. The priests along with the people. That's what we could say. And that's the sense we get. Together, they brought their offerings. And that's what remains true even in the New Testament. Well, there are just three general observations. And really, we're just beginning to consider uh, many, many great truths that we will see both about gospel grace offered to God, uh, offered from God to man, but also about uh, what worship involves in that setting. But we'll leave it there for now and we'll leave it to later sermons to bring out other general points. At this point, I would like to look at uh, specifically what was at play, the, the, the drama, you might say. At play in this, uh, this sacrament of the old covenant, the burnt offering. What was it that God was signifying, the spiritual truths God was signifying to the people in this ritual, sacred ritual? Well, uh, Voss again uh, notices very generally that this is the sequence of the offerings. Or the sacrifices. There was a selection, number one. Number two, the laying on of hands. Number three, the slaying of the animal and the use of blood. And uh, which, which involves sprinkling of the blood upon the altar. And number four, burning of the altar, the sacrifice on the altar. So four things involved. That's the general framework. But actually, if we look at verses one through nine... We can be even more specific than that. That is our list and our framework, but actually there are eight things that we can notice. And I'll try to be brief here, just noticing uh, the main features of each stage uh, in the ritual and the primary point of spiritual significance. In other words, the symbolism present in each specific act. And the first 
act was, as Vol says, the selection of a beast. But we can be even more specific. It was to be selected as one which was a male uh, without blemish and the best of the flock. And thus it was uh, symbolically to be one which was innocent, spotless, taking the place of sinful man. Next, it was to be done voluntarily. We notice that language of his own free will. He shall offer it of his own free will. And even earlier, if any man wants to bring an offering, how important it was to God to stress this point. That as God established and offered his grace at the altar of grace in the old covenant, that none in Israel were compelled to come. But that if any would come, he must come of his own free will. He must come willingly. But at the same time, on the other side, God is saying very clearly that all who had but a will to come, they might come. As I was just stressing a moment ago, none are excluded. All are invited. But he must be willing. And supposing he is, that is the only requirement. Grace does not ask anything of us except that we be willing to come. Bonar again. The gospel warrant is, whoever, whosoever will, let him come. The Lord allows all that are willing to come to the atoning provision. And I would add to that, to the altar of grace. Number three, we see that it was to be offered at the door of the tabernacle. Uh, which could mean that they brought the animal up to the very door, or more likely, I think it means that they simply brought the offering to the altar which faced the door of the tabernacle. But it doesn't really matter. What mattered was what this uh, terminology and this event conveyed to the one who offered, the fact that in bringing his offering, he was to face the door of the tabernacle. And what did that door represent to him? It meant, uh, for one thing, that the offering was to be made to God. That gifts and offerings are, are, uh, are before the Lord. That's the language you find in Leviticus. Before the Lord. Before God. And meant for him. It was meant to pacify his wrath. And to satisfy his justice. And to become a vehicle for the exercise and the display of his grace to sinners. But at the same time. While that door conveyed the presence of God and that the, the offering was offered before him, it, all, it, it conveyed uh, the opposite sense. The fact that there was a door and that that door was closed and doubly so, for there was not one but two doors into the inner holy of holies. And this also must have impressed the offerer at the same time that while grace was available to him under the old covenant, nevertheless, that as he stood at the altar of grace, he stood at a great distance between himself where he stood and God. Making him conscious of this, grateful for the grace the offering provided. And so we could say to balance the two thoughts, no, he may not enter. He can bring his offering, but he can only come so far. And yet, on the other hand, how near he got and we can only imagine the impression this must have had on the more spiritually minded of this age. But then as a fourth point is to place his hand on the head of the sacrifice uh, upon that which makes atonement. We read in verse four, 
It will be accepted on his behalf. Which really says it all. This is the idea of substitution. The necessary ingredient, if atonement is to be made, once sin is entered, that one would stand in my place on my behalf. For how can a man atone for his own sin? He cannot. But as the ritual played out, as Voss says, it becomes something done for the benefit of the offerer, but done outside of him. And how much I could say here. But thank God we have many, many sermons to go, so I'll leave that point there for now. Substitution. Number five, we see the slaying of the animal and the shedding and sprinkling of the blood upon the altar by the priests. Yes, and the blood, how significant that was and how much I could say about that and how much I will say in the coming sermons. But for now, I would simply notice the significance of the blood as is later said in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, is that in the blood was the life and therefore it makes atonement. But let me be even more specific, as is obviously the case from the ritual which played out. It is the life, the blood represents the life which was now forfeited. Not the life which passes through the veins of the living being. That is not the blood which atones, but it is the blood now which has been poured out. Or which Voss says has passed through the blood which has passed through the crisis of death. That is the blood now sprinkled on the altar which atones. And thus, in reality, the blood actually represents death. Death as the wages of sin inflicted upon the sacrifice And now sprinkled on the altar where God dwells by his priests. This follows with the cutting into pieces, number six, and the burning of the entire beast upon the altar. Total consumption. This is an important difference between the burnt offerings and, and other offerings. Nothing is left for the priests to eat. Nothing is taken outside the camp. The whole thing is burned there. The infliction of wrath upon the sacrifice and the substitute is total. It is complete. And with the result, finally, number seven, that we read God accepts and is pleased with the whole thing. It is an aroma which is well pleasing to the Lord. The sense is not there uh, that the smell was pleasing necessarily. The sense rather is that God was pleased with the fire that consumed. Provided it was done according to his command. Here he assures the offerer with these words that he will accept it as an atonement. And there will be grace and forgiveness extended to the offerer in the exchange that occurs there. A sacramental transaction, a real means of grace to the old covenant saints where man offers something to God and God having accepted it, uh, accepted it. As an atonement for sin and delighted in it, extends grace to man. But then number eight, going beyond these uh, verses, verses three through nine, there's one thing that I could add as an eighth point from the poor man's offering. Uh, There really is nothing different about, let us call him the middle class, but the poor man's offering is a little bit different than the, the bird. The head wrung off. The whole ritual there. But especially the bird. And the the point here simply is how birds, unlike the beasts of the field in the first two classes, the birds were gentle. They were meek. They symbolized innocence. 
It's a fitting picture of something we'll later consider, and I'll just leave it there for now. Uh, But I want to move now, having seen the symbolism uh, uh, and the details of the ritual, as a final point to look at the typical significance of these eight things. So the symbolism is the spiritual truths conveyed in the act itself, and the typology is the way in which that symbolism is carried forward into the new covenant. What does this have to say to to members of a new covenant? Following Matthew Henry here, uh, I would see typical significance both of Christ and his sacrifice and of the Christian, who I've already said are priests and ministers of a new covenant. And that's following what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. And so, these eight points again. Number one, the innocence of the beast pointed in a special way as we know from the book of Hebrews, to the holy, spotless, and undefiled nature of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. What was symbolically true of those beasts and those birds is true of him in an actual sense and in the truest possible sense. Jesus, the holy, spotless, innocent Lamb of God, that's what he really was. In him, there was no sin. No imperfection, no defilement, a perfect sacrifice if ever there was. One which God could not refuse. One in whom he delights, truly. But likewise, on the other side, in the typology of the Christian, this idea, the spotless nature of the, uh, of the beast pointed to the blameless living to which all Christians are called on a daily basis. Again, thinking of our lives as sacrifices of praise, the Lord has the same requirement. Let these sacrifices be blameless. Let them be undefiled. Do you understand now why that is the requirement which God lays upon you in your living out of the Christian life? That is the life of holiness. Number two, as to the voluntary nature. Well, here is a principle which is everywhere affirmed in Scripture, going all the way back to the days of Moses, but if anything, much more so in the new covenant. Let him who would come, come. Jesus says, come unto me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do not plead poverty or ignorance or whatever. Inquire only of yourself if there is a will to come and God will receive you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. Whatever else is true upon him uh, or whatever else is true of him, I mean. God will meet you at the place of sacrifice, which in the New Testament is the altar of the cross. When God says, come, That is where he's inviting you. And there grace and mercy will flow continually to the penitent seeker of grace. Yes, and do you have a will to come? And have you come to the place of grace and and the fount of mercy, peace and life? Again, the altar of grace, the cross of Christ. Have you met with God there and made peace? Oh, but notice this difference. Thirdly. Whereas the seeker met God at the door of the old covenant. Now Christ is entered. And so the transaction does not end there at the altar, but it goes beyond. Unlike the old covenant. 
What a fitting picture of what he has done for us and even for the saints of the old covenant. They stood at the door, but they did not enter. Even the priests. But Christ is drawn near and entered in based upon the strength of his own sacrifice and the purity of his person. The transaction does not end at the altar, but it brings us into the very holy of holies. And if you understand the book of Hebrews, you'll see that's the great argument that is being made. The way the sacrifice of Christ brings us into the into the very presence of God. And there God receives him always. For as he stands there in the presence of God, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. But what is almost more surprising is the way in Hebrews we are encouraged based upon this to enter ourselves. Not just our high priest going from the altar into the Holy of Holies, but the way he invites us to follow him. From the altar of grace into the presence of God. The inner sanctum. Can we not see this? And realize our privilege, our great and immeasurable privilege as recipients of a new covenant. To realize the grace which is available in the old covenant. An astonishing degree, far surpassed in the new covenant. To think of the sinner that is us. Not only meeting with God at the altar of grace, the place of sacrifice. And finding grace there. But to go from there into the very presence of God. That is precisely what Christians are bid to do in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near unto God, the new and living way being opened. Let us draw near into his presence by his grace, by faith, in prayer, and in the presence of other Christians. That is, in the midst of a Christian assembly. Indeed, it really is, if anything, uh, what he is describing there, a picture of worship. The church gathering in the presence of God, worshiping on the strength and the merits of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and drawing near to God. Here indeed is the new and living way, he says, and let us be sure that we make use of it. Number four, we see in the laying on of hands and the principle of substitution, the way in which, first of all, Hebrews chapter two, Christ lays hold of us. That's actually what is said in Hebrews chapter 2. Many of the translations fall short. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he takes hold of us as he stands in our place as our substitute. While at the same time we might apply that principle to ourselves. Because if we would be saved by him and if he would be our substitute, we must lay hold of him. We cannot stand at a distance, but we have to, uh, as it were, lay our hand on his head by faith. If his work would be of any value to us. No we cannot stand at a distance. But we must get into Christ. And stand in him before God. If his work is to be of any help to us. Number five. We see that Christ the sinless one. The sacrifice is slain for us. His body is killed. His blood is poured out. And in doing so. The blood which is poured out sprinkles the altar. It sprinkles the place of sacrifice which is the cross. But that is not all. Number six. We see in the the total consumption of the offering on the altar by fire. The totality of God's wrath consuming that which is sacrificed. And is that not what occurs at the cross as well? Uh, What Paul describes as the not sparing 
nature of God's wrath. And is that not what God did with his own son? He who did not spare him, but gave him or delivered him over for us all that we might be justified by faith. Yes, these burnt offerings in the total consumption pointed very strongly to what God would later do at the cross. For there we find that Jesus Christ, our substitute, gave his all. And he gave his all for us to God. He held nothing back, but he obeyed his father even to the point of death and even death on the cross. And yes, we could say at the same time, that is likewise what Christians are called to do. To embody in our lives the imagery and the principle present in the burnt offering, the burning, the total consumption. That Christians are called to give their all to God, even as Christ, our elder brother, gave his all to God for us. To see obedience not just as that which is principled and exact and detailed, but which is entire. A total and a complete life rendered unto God. For God requires nothing less. Finally, number seven, as we see God's good pleasure in what was offered then, a pleasing aroma we read under the old covenant, so we see doubly so in the new covenant. For nothing is so pleasing uh, to God than that Christ his Son and our Savior, Savior should offer himself for us. In this he is well pleased, as he affirms twice in the Gospels. He delights that Christ should do so. And thus he accepts and rejoices in the work of his son for sinners, ever declaring of this one, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Ever delighting and rejoicing in his work. Yes, in such delight and pleasure he now finds in the church, all of whom he now regards as in Jesus, as living and existing and standing in his person, so that as he regards him, with a spirit of continual acceptance and continual delight, he now regards us. He is now well pleased with the church as it stands in Christ. He delights in her even as he delights in his own son and his work of sacrifice. Our worship now goes forth unto God as a sweet aroma, pleasing to him because it is offered to him in Christ, his son, our sacrifice, our burnt offering. In him we are accepted and we are forgiven. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. But then just to take that one last point, that eighth point from the bird. The bird that was slain for the poor. I would add that in the meekness and the gentleness of the birds. Uh, so we find a fitting picture as well of Christ and what he would later do. And uh, indeed, I cannot help here, but again, quote Bonar. So striking does he put it. Speaking of the almost shocking nature uh, uh, and the violence by which. Uh, this little bird was killed upon the altar. One so innocent, he says, this arrangement is the better fitted to exhibit another feature in the death of Jesus. Namely, the awful violence done to one so pure, so tender and so lovely. We shrink back from the terrible harshness of the act. But on this very account, the circumstances are the better figure of the death of Jesus. We are horrified, he's saying, of the way this bird's head was wrung off and its blood was spilled. But are we not doubly horrified by what we see on the cross? Yes, let us be shocked, he says. 
Let us stand there in awe of what God has done and what our sin has brought about. Let us be astonished at the violence done to one so pure as Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, and the gentle dove offered on on our behalf. But at the same time, let us never in this question whether God intends to punish sin or whether he is offended by our sin or whether he hates sin and has wrath for sin and the sinner. While at the same time, let us realize that once he has poured out the totality of his wrath upon the burnt offering on the altar of grace, that even he and his justice can go no further. No, in Christ There is truly atonement for sin, for in his death there is a display of justice and wrath so awful and so complete that he is able, uh, Hebrews later tells us, to put away sin once and for all and to bring about remission. And such is the value of the work of Christ that God assigns. A value that he assigns to that sacrifice and that altar. For in all of its awful terribleness and ugliness, there is at the same time a display of meekness and power in that sacrifice that God greatly values and which prevails with God. And so it becomes at the same time a display of his justice and his wrath and of his mercy mercy and his love and his grace to sinners. And seeing it as such, I would only say to Christian people, Oh, that that would melt your heart. Oh, that that would uh, make you one who is meek and lowly and gentle and innocent, just like Jesus, our sacrifice and great high priest. Amen. And let us uh, return now our praise to God as we stand together and sing hymn number 23.